Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This week, AJC Passport is all about protests and rallies. Last Saturday night, 100,000 Israelis came together in Tel Aviv's Rabin Square. Led by Israel's Druze minority, the protesters came with a simple message. The new nation-state bill does not do enough to protect Israel's minorities. We'll be speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, former IDF spokesman, to hear why he joined the protests. And, in a far more ominous vein, this coming Sunday... The racists of the alt-right will mark the one-year anniversary of their deadly Charlottesville rally with a sequel, this time in Washington, D.C. My colleague Alan Ronkin, director of AJC's Washington office, will join us to talk about his work with the black community in D.C. to build a united front opposing this hate. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we talk about the topic at hand, I, I think we can't ignore what's happening, um, this recent flare-up between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Can you just fill in our listeners, as of Thursday morning, U.S. time, where do things stand? So we've seen, uh, basically, over the last 24 hours, a repetition of the cycles of violence that have taken place um, basically since the 30th of March. So uh, Hamas has this strategy of confrontation in order to bring them to the limelight. And it has, every few weeks, we've had a, a day or two of 100 or 200 uh, rockets and mortars fired at Israel. And today has been one of those days. And indeed, uh, up until now, about 180 rockets and mortars have been fired at Israel. Um, the furthest they've actually launched to so far is to Beersheba. I saw on social media some uh, Palestinian factions are actually saying that they intend on launching towards Tel Aviv as well, so we'll have to see what that happens. Uh, but that's basically the reality on the ground, and we, we can uh, expect that um, you know, the coming hours of, uh, of today will uh, be really important to see what develops. Israel, on their behalf, has... Um, conducted counter-strikes, uh, around 150 targets, uh, mostly of Hamas assets. Um, so it could be anything from uh, command and control positions, uh, close-quarter uh, training facilities, tunnel uh, uh, entrances and, and, and routes and, and components of their apparatus. But the idea is to degrade those capabilities in order to uh, um, send a clear message, basically, to Hamas that you have a lot to lose in confronting, confronting Israel. I still think that by the way that we've seen things going over the last uh, 24 hours, that both Israel and Hamas don't really want to end up in a full war again. And that's what's really interesting. Uh, but we are on the brink, and it could go either way. 
Yeah, I, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of, of whiplash here as the push notifications on my phone almost alternate between talking about you know, where where the latest rockets have hit Israel from Gaza, where Israel's latest airstrikes have taken place, and what the state of ceasefire negotiations, kind of hearkening back to all the things that have happened over the past several months at this point, and, you know, the progress of those ceasefire negotiations. Yeah, I think there are basically two core components that if something strategic doesn't change um, in Israel's security needs and the uh, return of the bodies and the Israeli civilians that are being held by Hamas on one hand. And on the other hand, Hamas, uh, the alleviation of the humanitarian situation in Gaza, um, uh, on the other hand, then this is going to happen again and again and again until it does end up in, in a, uh, another war. And then nobody's interest, but that, that could happen. Uh, and, and the reality on the ground currently is now, in the heat of uh, negotiations, where Egypt is deeply involved, the United Nations um, is deeply involved, and there seems to be uh, lots of talk of lots of opportunities, but it doesn't seem to be pulling through. This could be a, an attempt on behalf of Hamas to try and, and ratchet up the pressure from their perspective. Um, and we have to understand that what happened was uh, uh, we're currently in this bout because of uh, the event that happened a couple of days ago where uh, shots were fired from a uh, Hamas tower and um, the IDF forces heard the shots, identified the shots, and uh, misinterpreted them as, as being shot towards Israeli forces, and therefore they were shot and killed. And, and then Hamas has promised since then that they were going to respond and retaliate and what we've seen basically over the last 24 hours is that retaliation. Um, during the day, they actually said that they'd uh, fulfilled their goals and they'd, they'd, they'd succeeded in doing what they had intended to do, and then and that it is up to Israel. And after a few few moments or an hour or so after they had announced that, then they shot rockets towards Beersheba. So I, I think what we have to look is see how they are acting, not necessarily what they're saying uh, on one hand, and we have to make sure that there are very few mistakes on, on behalf of Israel that can escalate the situation further because Israel really doesn't want to have another war in the middle of the summer. Yes, and listeners to AJC Passport will remember that we've previously had Nikolai Mladenov from the, the UN on. Uh, we haven't yet had anyone from the Egyptian government on, but but we know just how, how doggedly um, he works uh, to try to, uh, to keep the peace. So we can only hope that he and the Egyptian uh, brokers are successful at quieting things down. Now, Peter, I want to turn to the topic that we asked you to, to come and talk about. We're, we're blessed to have you on this morning. I can't think of anyone better than you uh, to give us this kind of breaking news analysis, but we're here to talk actually about an experience that you had recently about other developments in Israel. To put it simply, your moving op-ed in the forward, uh, which we'll link to uh, in our show notes. You wrote that you just took part in your first protest at age 44, which is still young, of course, but it's kind of past that youthful point where many people are at their most, you know, activist. You must feel really strongly about the nation state law if it kind of moved you to take that first step. Before we get to your opinion, though, can you tell us about the substance of the law? Yes, of course. Well, the law, um, in my view, is a good and necessary law. Um, when you identify uh, after 70 years, the state of Israel as the Jewish state, 
and you put it into legislation which did not exist up until then, I think it's a very important step. Um, and, uh, and the way it was done was, you know, it's been discussed now for years, and uh, in a hasty way, um, they uh, decided to pass the law in a way which uh, designates the state of Israel uh, as the Jewish state of the, Jew- uh, the state of the Jewish people, um, identifies its symbols, identifies its language, um, and that is mostly all very good. And I, you know, I'm really happy with that. Um, when when I was looking at the at the law and, and, and I read it several times, um, there were just some things that were missing from it, and that is what m- pushed me towards. Okay, this, the, I have to do something for myself. I've, you know, for the last 25 years, I've been serving in the military. I've served my country. I, I'm very proud of my service. I love my country. But, you know, there is half of my military service I spent day to day with Druze soldiers, officers, the most courageous, brave patriots I've, I've ever met. They are not ashamed of it. They're very proud of it. And I was looking for any sort of notification that the minorities, that definitely those that serve, and not only because I think it's also that, that uh, a fundamental document like that needs to incorporate the entire identity of a state of Israel with it being the Jewish state of Israel. And therefore I, I felt, and that's why I found myself uh, at the demonstration, at the protest, um, standing shoulder to shoulder with... Uh, 100,000 sweaty other people in, in, <laughs> on uh, Saturday night. Um, and it was really, really hot, but it was really, really moving because you saw, I saw, you saw people that they, they're very proud of their Israeliness. When they sang the Hatikva, they have no doubt who they are. But they want to feel belong. They don't want to be felt, they don't want to feel left out. And they don't want to feel humiliated. And that's the sense that I got, and that's why um, you know, I came home that night and I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay, Sunday morning, uh, and I wrote that, uh, that article in the forward. What's the mood in the country now after the protest? Is there a sense that change is in the air? I don't think so. I think uh, there are... Uh, because more than just the protest, we also heard from Israeli politicians who lead parties that voted for the law, people like Naftali Bennett, even from the national religious right, or Moshe Kahlon from the center right, who said, you know, oh, you know, maybe actually this, this was done hastily. Maybe this wasn't the best uh, way to do it, which, which is an interesting thing to say about a law that's been contemplated since 2011. But there seemed to be some, some remorse about the final state of the bill. Knesset is basically out, and what uh, at least Benny Begin said, he, he was going to address it in the upcoming session. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. I think it's an important, we can't brush it under the table. There has, there has to be some sort of movement on this subject. And we have to make it clear that, you know, um, uh, the components that existed in the fundamental clauses of the Declaration of Independence for the identity of the State of Israel um, will be incorporated in this in this piece of le- legislation. It's, it's important for the country. Uh, it's important for our, our identity. It's, it's, it's also important for our growth uh, as a nation, as a state.
You mentioned the Druze before. Uh, the Druze, of course, being um, the small Arab minority largely based in, in Israel's north. It's kind of a, a secretive religion. And Druze Israelis do serve in the uh, IDF. They are, by law, drafted into the IDF. And some Druze officers who are career officers um, have taken the step of resigning from the military now after this law. If changes don't come, and you sound skeptical that they will, what will that mean for the Druze community's relationship with the state and with the army? So uh, maybe I sound a bit pessimistic. That's just perhaps, you know, the types of things that I've seen throughout my career and lifetime, I, I like to be take the, the safe side of things and not necessarily get my hopes up too high. <laughs> but I do hope that the, the legislation will change and will be adapted to incorporate uh, the minorities and the Druze. And uh, what I understand up until now is despite those uh, few officers that um, announced that they were retiring or leaving or, or handing in their papers, um, uh, I think they've all actually taken, taken those back. So I think there is the, the military is actually managing it very effectively. Uh, with the with a good human touch um, in order to mitigate the crisis, um, I, I think what we'll have to see is what happens when when they come back from their recess, the Knesset, uh, and is it going to be sub, a subject on the on the table? They had an emerg um, an emergency gathering convene, convening this week. Um, you know, very few participants. It's in the middle of summer; people are on summer holidays, and and. Um, nothing came from that except for some statements. Uh, but we'll have to see if there is actually a working process when, when they come back. Peter, I, I want to push you a little bit on the focus on Druze in your op-ed. And, and, and you referenced Arab citizens of Israel and, and others as well. Maybe you were focusing on Druze just because that's what you know. That's, that's your experience. But I think I've noticed that there's been this kind of focus more generally on the Druze as this you know loyal, this maybe model minority, and about creating some kind of a carve-out for them in the law. That's something that I've notice some people floating. But to me, that doesn't seem like an equitable solution, right? The the matter at hand is really about democracy and about the rights of all citizens, not just about kind of the best of Israel's minorities, right? Absolutely. Um, for, as I wrote in, in the article, I wrote that the Druze are the embodiment of minor, minority inclusion in the Jewish state. I think they are the good example, and I think by not including them, we're sending a message to everybody, because even those that serve and those that are mm -hmm. part, an integral part of society and see themselves as such are not included in the fundamental laws. So I think that it, it, they are obviously need to be in, uh, and, I, and I think other minorities as well. Um, I have my... I, I was I wrote extensively about the Druze because of my experience, because of my knowledge, and because of my understanding and love for the people. Uh, um, and, and that, from my perspective, was the key and the trigger for writing the article because it was their demonstration where you saw sad faces standing on the podium and, and speaking, and, uh, and uh, but sad but very proud to be Israeli. Um, and, and that's why it was so emotional, uh, emotionally um, 
motivating for me to to write about it. But I I would agree with you that that is just the the, the tip of the iceberg. The, the heart of it needs to be inclusion of all minorities in a way where everybody has their position. They are they are absolutely. Um, equal in in our democracy, and of course the the Jewishness of the state of Israel cannot be challenged. It needs to be maintained. It needs to be uh, celebrated. It needs to be accepted. Um, and uh, and that doesn't mean you know just because uh, some of the comments that I received after the uh, uh, the op-ed aired were around. Okay, so what do you mean that? Uh, um, Druze will be able to have the right to return. Of course not. That's that's not. Nobody was, <laughs> was claiming that. But the idea is that people feel equal and have equal capabilities, and they are seen equal in the eye of the law. And the fact that it is a Jewish state, it's like other states in the world. They're Christian, and they have uh, uh, um, a, a wide spectrum of various different religions, and it doesn't really matter. I think that is what is really needed. And so you said at the outset of our conversation that you like what the bill does, what the law does in terms of cementing Jewish symbols as the symbols of the state and things like that. What's the change that's missing then? Is it, is it just a clause that says, you know, in addition to being the Jewish state, Israel is also a state for all its citizens founded on the principles of democracy, yada, 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 something like that? Something like that. But when our founding fathers here in Israel in, in, uh, read out the Declaration of Independence, they said the state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. And I think that type of sentence makes all of the difference. I think it's important to acknowledge Arabic as a, as a uh, not a special language, but a, uh, with a special status, but as an official language. I think that you know there are 20% of this country they need to be acknowledged in this fundamental piece of legislation, and that's why it was such a, a an emotional couple of weeks uh, in Israel. And, uh, and it seems that the, the events uh, with Gaza over the last 24 hours have pushed that aside as they always seem to do, but uh, it'll probably be back, yeah. Peter, I want to close by turning to a topic that I think a lot of our listeners here at AJC Passport think about a lot. You are an advocate. I'm an advocate. We both love Israel. I've noticed a couple times now since you finished your active duty in the IDF that you have been critical of Israeli government policy on Twitter. When is it appropriate for those of us who love Israel, who advocate for Israel, to let that love move us to criticize? That is the, the million-dollar question. I think uh, there are a couple of things um, that I would relate to in, in, in that question. I think, first of all, coming out of 25 years of service, um, you, some, you know, I find myself trying to find my own voice on certain things because after speaking for, for the military for so long, you, 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 you come to question certain things and things that you haven't questioned in the past. And, of course, the reality on the ground is always much more complex sometimes than uh, the media, whether the Israeli media or the foreign media want to represent. So I think my voice, and I think that's the added value of my experience, means that I can shine a different light on things and, and try and skip away from the political hyperbole. Uh, and when is it okay? I think you, know, you can. I think you can be a strong.
strong Israel advocate, and you can be critical of Israel and still love Israel. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in blind love. Uh, I think it needs to come from a deep connection to the state of Israel. Um, you know, obviously nobody, uh, nobody that I've spoken to says that I have not served my country and therefore I have no right to talk. I think that there are things that, if you feel that there is an injustice as an as an individual, as a person, as a human being, if you feel that you know the state of Israel has made mistakes, um, you know, my voice is. is quite a unique voice and, and some people want to hear it um, and therefore I think you know I can be a bridge to the world and to the Jewish world and still love my country even if I have some sometimes uh, criticism for some of the things that go on here Peter thank you so much for joining us thank you Ahead of the second Unite the Right rally this Sunday in Washington, D.C., AJC's Alan Ronkin joined forces with the Urban League, a leading African-American civil rights organization, and called for civil and political leaders across the country to denounce the hateful rally coming to his city. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Give us the background here. Who is coming to Washington, D.C. on Sunday, and why are they coming? Well, what happens in Washington on Sunday is something called Unite the Right Two, which is a rally of uh, right-wing activists uh, who unite under this general umbrella that we like to call the alt-right. Uh, the alt-right is a group of people who are very loosely connected into very uh, diverse groups, but the unifying factor is that they reject traditional conservatism uh, for a more radical agenda, and they're coming on Sunday. Where might people be familiar with this group, with this rally? You know, you mentioned it's Unite the Right 2. What was Unite the Right 1 again? Yes, Unite the Right 1 happened uh, one year ago on Sunday in Charlottesville, Virginia, where a large group of hundreds of Unite the Right activists came to that college town ostensibly to protest the removal of a statue of a Confederate general. However, it quickly devolved into uh, violence, uh, shouting of uh, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-African-American slogans, and uh, really raised uh, terror in the city Uh, as people really didn't know what to do with this large group of people who were carrying torches and, uh, you know, yelling Nazi uh, slogans. And what should we make of the fact that they're not going back to Charlottesville or to somewhere else in the South, but they're coming to Washington, D.C., to our nation's capital? Does this reflect a certain uh, increased boldness? I think so. I think they're looking to make a very bold statement. Uh, They're going to be right across the street from the White House in Lafayette Park, uh, sending a signal that they're not going away, that they want to deliver their message, and that uh, we should all be concerned about uh, the implications of that uh, for our community and for all communities, uh, minorities, uh, here in the United States. Now, Alan, you issued 
a great joint statement, which we'll link to in our show notes with George Lambert Jr., your counterpart at the head of the Urban League's Washington, D.C. office. You called on civic, political, and religious leaders to unequivocally reject the anti-Semitism and racism of these white nationalists, this alt-right mob, this Unite the Right to rally. What's the history of the relationship there, by the way, between AJC and the Urban League? Well, AJC here in Washington, D.C. and the Greater Washington Urban League have had a relationship for many, many years. We collaborate on issues. Our young leadership has a very close relationship with the Thursday network of the Greater Washington Urban League. Uh, We convene an annual Black Jewish Seder. Uh, And more importantly, the relationship is bound in shared values of uh, rejecting of anti-Semitism, of all kinds of bigotry and racism, and we work very closely together to see that those goals are, are met. And so where did this idea start? How did you and George decide to put out this statement? Well, we both looked at, at what was coming uh, and had a conversation and said, look, we need to stand up, and more importantly, we need to send a signal that the African-American community and the Jewish community, as minorities in the United States, stand united against this kind of bigotry and anti-Semitism. Often what happens is uh, the alt-right, the white nationalists, try to divide various ethnic groups and try to sow the seeds of discord between us. And it was very important for us to stand together and make this kind of a statement. Alan, is is there a certain urgency that moves the Jewish community and the black community to work together to, to fight back against this kind of hatred? Absolutely. Uh, there is a rise of hate crimes in this country, and we're seeing it coming out of the Internet. We're seeing uh, now even more brazen calls uh, here in uh, Virginia. The Ku Klux Klan has been uh, circulating flyers in Jewish neighborhoods. And as you know, um, according to the FBI statistics, Jews are the most targeted group when it comes to religiously biased hate crimes, and African Americans the largest group when targeting racially uh, focused hate crimes. And so we have a real interest in standing together for the safety and security of our communities, as well as the moral and ethical obligation that we have. Terrific. Well, thank you, Alan, for doing the work that you do and and for uh, moving this partnership forward and for giving voice to, I think, what many of us in the Jewish community and I think in the black community as well feel that that this kind of hatred has no place uh, in our country and, and much less in our capital. Thanks again for all the work that you do. Thank you, Sefi, and thank you for having me today. Now it's time for our closing segment. Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Israel's minorities. Good for the Jews? Lucy Aharish is the young Israeli Arab who has already shattered one glass ceiling in her short career. She is the first Arab news presenter on Hebrew-language Israeli television, currently serving as a morning anchor on Israel's Channel 2. She is a well-regarded and highly respected figure in Israel. So it was particularly moving to hear her monologue this week posted to Facebook in which she skewered Israel's nation-state law. She closed by paraphrasing the words that every Israeli knows by heart from Ehud Manor's famous song, Ein Li Eretz Acheret, I Have No Other Homeland. 
The refrain of the song goes, I have no other homeland, just one word in Hebrew penetrates my veins, my soul. She concludes instead saying, we have no other homeland, just one word in Hebrew or in Arabic penetrates my veins, my soul. The depth of love and respect that Lucy Aharish shows for Israel, even while being critical of flawed government policy, that is good for Israel. And it is certainly good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.